morning. Oh, thank you for saying good morning back to me. It's always that like number one like awkward moment fear that that might happen and, and no one says it back and then all of a sudden you don't know if your then you don't know if your mic is working and if your mic is not working then there's some sort of problem they have to fit. like I just good morning I'm glad that you guys are here um, and it's a real privilege to get to be in this spot myself my name is Nick Allen I'm the campus pastor at this location um, and I love the opportunity just to introduce myself to people on Sunday mornings particularly new folks and so if if it is your first time here um, I would tell you that at the end of the service I'll be in the back and I love to shake hands and learn names and just get to know people and find out a portion of their story, how they even heard about this and made the determination that they were going to come today. Do we have any Nashville half or full marathoners in the house? Yes. Way to go. Look at this. I just want to celebrate with you for a moment. Um, and do we have any like number one draft picks in the house? Y'all did. Y'all didn't come. They didn't come this morning. Okay, that's all right. Um, maybe, maybe one day, you never know. Um, that would be a lot of fun. So in my house, my wife Susan and I, we have three kids. A lot of you guys know them. Lily, Kate, Nora, Blake, and Simon are ages 12, 11, two older girls. Um, and then Simon is six years old, bringing up the rear. Um, and, and I just want to like, just for a second, you kind of go with me on a little bit of a journey. Our um, kids have had a very sheltered vocabulary in life, which... Um, is kind of a good thing, I think. And so way to go. I'm like, I don't know how I'm just, I'm thankful for that. And so it is not an odd occasion for one of our kids to inform us that someone said, um, just go with me on this, an S word. And we're like, okay, well, let's just, I'm not going to, I'm going to breathe for a second. What, well, what word was that? And they're like, stupid. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Like, that's good. Okay, we're, well, we're, that's not a kind word. It's not something that we say. It's not something that we definitely don't refer to another person as being that. So that's a good thing. But several months ago, I just decided in, in a moment of dad wisdom, you guys can judge it and say if it's a good thing or not. But here, there's, there's a lot of words out there that we, we don't say. We're not going to say. We're not going to allow them to say. We're going to shove a bar of dial in their mouth if they do say it. You know, that kind of, that happened to me growing up and apparently works. So I think it's okay. And there's these words that just, that hold a little bit of power. And when people say it, they use it to gain power, to assert power, to be powerful, to look a certain way, to behave a certain way. Most of them are incredibly derogatory. A lot of them very, really derogatory towards women. We're raising like young, powerful girls. We don't want them to know and be like admonished by those words. And so we want to remove all the power that those words have and be the ones to tell them what those words are. So they're not A, hearing it from another kid or B, hearing it on a show or a movie or something that we haven't really allowed them to watch, but that's okay. Cause like we, they're going to hear it out there at some point. So it's better just to go ahead and warn them on the front end. Hey, these are some words that we don't say. This is what they mean. This is how they're used. And this is why it's really inappropriate to leverage it in our everyday language. And so I go over kind of a, a few of those words just to kind of break some of the ice to come home and talking to Susan about it. And she says, you know, hey, do you tell them like all the bad words? Like, well, I don't know if I know all the bad words, but I definitely didn't say what I would deem as the worst words. And, and we're talking about the power of them. And so hopefully we've, we've warned them and we've set them up so that those words have now, their power has been removed. They're not going to, nobody's going to hover it over my kids, make them feel embarrassed for not knowing it. And they're definitely going to know it when they hear it to realize why those words are what they are. I think that there's another word. It's one that none of us would ever deem as inappropriate or like something that you can't say or something. You can't. In fact, we use it in everyday language all the time, but I do think it's one of the more dangerous words. It's a word that has a potential to do incredible good in our lives. It's a word that can mean something really important to us and, and illustrate a value to us, but I think if we're, if we're not careful that it's also a word that can be used to have a lot of power over us and to be really damaging 
to who we are is it's the word more. And you follow me, you think more. Unbelievable potential to be great when we talk about more love, more kindness, more generosity, more peace, more of Jesus. The, oh, what an incredible word it is. But then you start to think about mm, more donuts. Well, that's about more coffee, more power, more authority, more of everything that we see and think that we want in life. It can make us a really selfish, a really gluttonous, a really entitled people really quickly if we're not careful the idea of this whole series called leverage is it is making the most of what you have in fact the word itself literally means to use something for maximum advantage to use whatever it is that you have to its maximum advantage a maximum potential like to do the thing that it's meant to be able to do and today when we talk about time we actually talk about a resource that we all have the exact same amount each day it, it's a commodity but it's not a variable one because you and i we get 24 hours in a rotation of the earth we get 365 days um, in, in in a revolution around the sun the challenge with making the most of the time that you have is we don't know how many of those revolutions we're going to be afforded and so the real question is, how do you spend the time that you have? How do you leverage the time that you have to do more good and, and less harm to you and others around you by the way that you utilize that time? How are you going to leverage it, not only for your maximum advantage, but maximum advantage of other people around you? Americans, this is a horrible statistic, we spend more time than ever watching videos, browsing social media, and swiping on tablets and smartphones. American adults, oh goodness, you're not even ready for this. We can spend as much as 11 hours per day watching, reading, listening, or simply interacting with media. Whatever kind of media it is, whether it's music or movies or television or some sort of social networking device, we can spend upwards of 11 hours engaging such things four or five years ago in 2014 it was nine hours and 32 minutes we're only ever on the increase spending more and more hope oh, that's when the word gets dangerous more time on devices such as these i found this graphic and this explains a little bit about where we are with just phones alone with just phones alone on average we touch these 58 times per day 70 percent of those touches which is about 40 of them only lasts for two minutes or less. Okay, that's no, two minutes or less. 25% of them are two to 10 minutes, and 5% of those 58 touches per day last longer than 10 minutes alone. That totals over three hours and 15 minutes on just the phone. You can see how somebody would really quickly get to the 11 hours when you add other media, computer screens, televisions, tablets, how whatever walkman radios like i don't know whatever you do to listen to music like that's how we get to that point and then we wonder where in the word world our time actually goes and how it's spent and if we're margining it outright and if we're making the most of 
what we have if we're using it wisely. And so we find ourselves this week, at least in this series, in the middle of a, a wisdom literature book. In the Old Testament of your Bible, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you want to turn there, we're going to spend some time in chapter 3 today um, learning the lyrics of a very popular song. But there is a time for everything. And, and so if you find Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know that in Hebrew, it, it's the word koeleth. And it literally means preacher or collector. It, it, both of those words, preacher or collector of really wise sayings. And I think that's a fantastic thing to do, to be somebody who collects wisdom. And if there's anything in life that would be worth collecting and understanding and knowing, it would be wisdom. We don't want to just collect wisdom. We don't want to just memorize wise sayings. We don't want to just post them in cute frames on like walls in our house because they're really kitschy. You're like, grab the Instagram photo and say, oh, this is a really wise thing. Like, we actually want to apply that wisdom to our lives. Because wisdom that you hear but don't apply is... Really what makes a person foolish in general, Jesus said that, and it's written down for us in the book of Matthew chapter 7, that if we hear these words of his and apply them to our lives, we're like a wise builder. But if we hear these words of ours and his and let them go in one ear and out the other, and we don't apply them to our lives, then we're the foolish man who built a house on the sand. And when the rains came and the winds rose and, and all the, the hurricane force came, the house fell and the fall was great because that's a person who doesn't take this wisdom and apply it to life. And so we're taking this wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 today and seeking to apply it to our life. Traditionally, authorship of this book is attributed to King Solomon, who we would designate as the wisest man who ever lived. And we have to be really careful in that moment because we fast forward to a time in his life when he did the most unwise thing of anyone who ever lived. Because wisdom isn't always the only thing that you need. It's not just about having the wisdom, it's about applying the wisdom. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we start with verse 1 and it says, There is a time for everything. Oh, and you're like, oh yeah, I know that song. Uh, and a season for every activity under the heavens. That word time, there's a time for everything, is literally an appointed time. Like, we shouldn't read this and think, okay, there's a time, there's like a general vicinity. Like, you know, you go to some countries and like their concept of time is very, very different than what we do, like kind of in this Western mindset. And so someone could say, oh yeah, three o'clock, and that mean anywhere from three to four p.m. If I say three o'clock, I mean three o'clock, not 3.01. Like, it's a, it's a very specific appointed time. And I, I definitely fall under the category of like, early is on time. Time, on time is late, late is unacceptable. Like that's just a really good, like that's a, everybody should write that down. That's like wisdom today. It's not in your notes this morning, but like early is on time and on time is late, late is unacceptable. Like this is a, a very specific appointment time. Your doctor's office appointment time is very different because if your appointment is at nine, they tell you to arrive at 845. Why do they do that? Because they don't want you late. And they want you to sign a bunch of paperwork in advance before you actually go back there and actually get to see the doctor. They want you to be there 15 minutes early so that they can get you to another room where you sit for 45 minutes waiting for them to actually come and see you. I get it. It's problematic. But the point is, this is a very specific appointed time. Like a God-selected time. Because he's the one who gets to set the appointment. So there's a specific appointed time for everything and, and a season for every activity under the heavens. And then we get all these couplets. In verse 2, it says, a time to be born and a time to die. Well, that's specifically what we all have. Job 14.5 says that a person's days are determined, that God has decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. 
That is an incredibly difficult pill to swallow. But when we look at the length of a person's life, what scripture affirms for us and helps us understand and know with certainty is that the 95-year-old who leaves this earth, he did not get one minute too long. And the 15-year-old or the 25-year-old or the 40-year-old who dies tragically did not get one day too little. Because there was an appointed time. There was a very specific decree. And the Lord in his sovereign right is the one who gets to set it. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. Okay, good. We already got the like birth and death out of the way. Now we get to go to something agricultural that's just going to feel better. A time to plant and a time to uproot. And then you get to verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. And you think, what in the world is this? When on earth would there ever be a time for us to kill? Scripturally, you can actually attach that to the clause that came right before it. If there's a time to plant and a time to uproot and a time to kill and a time to heal, it's still agricultural in metaphor. We don't have to look at that as capital one murder or homicide. We can literally look at it in cows like there is a moment when you as a farmer would want to do the work of trying to heal the cow and get the cow well but there's also a moment when you as a farmer have to determine or even a dog owner sad day have to determine when it is the appropriate time to put the cow down so we're stilling with that kind of metaphor there is a time to plant there is a time to uproot there's a time for you to kill and also a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. We're, we're teetering into generational. And Israel would have understood that because generationally there was a time when the house needed to be torn down and a new one built up in its place. You can say that here in the 12 South neighborhood all you want to. And some we don't want to. There's a historic overlay. You can't tear those houses down. But some can be torn down and something new. Sometimes we like it. Sometimes we don't. Built up in its place. Well, that's this generation. There is a time, here we are, with Solomon as king over Israel, there was a time for David's reign to end and a time for Solomon's reign to build and begin. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And this would have been a specific reference for the original audience. If Solomon is saying these words, he's referencing very specifically his own father because David did both of those things. He rejoiced, and the Bible said he danced wildly, maybe even a little bit naked, in the streets when the ark of God was brought into the holy city because he was celebrating, and he also mourned and wept and sat in his own grief when a child of his died. And there's a time in life, a point in time, specific times for you and I to engage in both. Times when we need to feel all the feelings and celebrate all the highs and then also mourn all the lows of life. It says there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. This is a really nice way of saying war. What? Because that's one of the things that an invading army would do when they came to town. They would not only like, you know, kill and pillage and plunder all the people and all the places there, but then they would throw stones on the farmland because it would render it useless for another few years. It was like a way to stick it to them. Like, yep, we already took all of your men and killed them. We already took all of your houses and all of your like everything that was good. And just to stick it to you one more time, we threw rocks on your farm so that you couldn't plow for years. 
to come. And in 2 Kings, there was a moment when Israel got, they were often on the receiving end of this. In 2 Kings chapter 3, there was a moment when they got to be on the giving end of this. And it was an appointed time by God for them to plunder the Midianites. And before they left, they threw rocks onto the fields to render them useless. There's a time for that. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing There's a time to recognize that we're in full alignment, but then there's also a time to recognize that we are not unified over a particular subject. It happens in the life of the church. It happens in the lives of believers as we look at what God's word says and we come down on sometimes a very divisive point of reference. And we have to say on this point, we're not going to move. We're not going to budge from what God's word says. We will not be in alignment. We can love each other as people, but we're not going to embrace when it comes to this particular point. There's a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep And a time to throw away TLC, hoarders buried alive. There is a time. Sometimes you just have to get rid of stuff. Stuff will weigh you down. Stuff makes you unready and unusable for the good work that God wants to do in your life because you're tied down, literally tethered to all this stuff that you've accumulated. So we want to know that there's a time. Some things you keep, some things you throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend. It's a Jewish reference to the process of kirya. It literally means that you, you tear your clothes, that you tear your clothes in grief. Um, it's part of the Jewish practice of sitting shiva where all of your friends and relatives and neighbors would gather around you in a time of grieving and they would literally mourn. There's, there's all sorts of rules for the mourning process in Judaism and, and Lasting for like 30 days, once it was over, the mourner would sew his clothes back together, shake it off, and move forward. Sometimes we have to understand that in our lives and recognize that in our lives. There is a time for grief. There's a time to sit in it. There's a time to feel it. There's a time to, 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 to reconcile what it is in our lives. But then there's also a time to get up and move on. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Oh, we need that in our social media world. Some things just don't need my commentary. Some, some things in life just don't need my opinion. And we live in a world where we are are under the assumption that everything that's out there, everything that's said, everything that's tweeted, everything that's posted, everything that's communicated somehow needs my op-ed on what it is. So we, we, we recognize that there is a time to be silent, too, to, to just kind of hush and, and, and bring down the noise. But then also a time when we have to speak up and we have to speak out and we have to make a difference. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And what you want to reference there is there's always a time to love our Lord God and ultimately a time when we have to come to an understanding that we hate like he hates our sin and what it does for us. A time for war and a time for peace. These couplets in... um, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there, there are a couple things for us, and it's in your notes this morning. If you're a person that likes to write down things or underline things along the way that you can maybe remember or consider a, a little bit later, these, these couplets are first, they're all-inclusive. 
And, and what that means is that this is, a, this is a poetic device known as mirrorism, which I'm probably mispronouncing. But what it means when you take these two things that are on opposite extremes, like birth and death, planting and harvesting, what you really mean is that there's not just a specific appointed time for those two things. There's actually an appointed time for everything in between them. They're used as illustrations of all inclusion, everything in between. So, so the writer, the wisdom writer is not saying, oh yeah, there's an appointed time for you to be born. There's appointed time for you to die. And everything else that happens in the middle is completely up to you and chance. That's not true. Every single day has purpose. Every single moment has an appointment. Every single instance has this great God of the universe hovering over it, being the sovereign Lord over it. That every single one of those things counts. These opposing couplets, they don't just mean the actual words. They mean everything else that would find itself in between it. Everything has a specific time or an appointed season. These, these couplets are not just all-inclusive. They're also beyond our control. They're, 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 they're beyond our control. As soon as we realize... That life is outside of our control and that there's a great God of the universe in charge of it. We are taking a drastic step towards wisdom. While we can control how we spend our time and to create margin to really walk in wisdom. We can't determine the amount of time or what God says over that time. It, these things are beyond our control. And ultimately, these couplets are completely neutral. We can look at them and say, oh, there's a time to kill. That's bad. There's a time to heal. That's good. No, these these couplets are are neutral. The, the writer is not saying, oh, this is good and this is bad. He's not remarking on them. But just understanding that they're there is a step towards wisdom. You can't you can't use Ecclesiastes chapter three to justify war or to promote peace. Danny Aiken says that there's 14 pluses and 14 minuses in this segment, and they literally just cancel each other out. But these are neutral statements. We can't look at this and say, oh, there's a time for war. I'm for that. Well, great. Good for you. Oh, there's a time for peace. I'm for that. That's awesome. Good for you. But ultimately, there's not a commentary here that says one is better than the other. Only, only an understanding that there is a specific appointed time for both. When we examine everything that there is in life, and that's what this stuff is, every single piece of life, and we examine all there is in it, what we realize is that we were made for something so much more. And there's that word that can be such a blessing or, or, or can be such a danger. If you skip down to verse 11, it says he, and that's talking about the Lord God, the sovereign creator of the universe. He has made everything beautiful. Some of your Bible translations are going to say appropriate. It just means the right thing. He's made everything right in its time. He has also done something different. He has set eternity in the human heart. This, this longing to know that we are here for something more, that it doesn't just end in death. This idea that something comes after it. This idea that there is more to life than just the things that are described in the poem before, that he has set eternity in the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Continues, it says, I know that there is nothing better, verse 12, for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That good means benefit. 
to do what's beneficial, not just for you, that would be the easy answer, but ultimately for others. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he said, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. He appointed in advance for us to do. To begin your notes, you got this Augustine quote, and it says, You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. I got to admit, I approached this series early on, the idea of what am I going to leverage? What, what, is it that, what is it that I'm going to leverage about my time next week? Education, at some point, disappointments in life, at some point, resources in this series, whatever platform or, or opportunities I've been given in life. How am I going to leverage those things for the benefit of others and for the glory of God's kingdom? And what I realized in that moment is that it, it's not Nick Allen doing any of the leveraging. It's not me leveraging my time. It's God leveraging me. Because we're the resource. We're the commodity. We're the thing that God is leveraging to do his good work in the world. The reason that I want to leverage my time, the reason why I want to maximize my education, the reason why we want to leverage our resources or our platforms or whatever else, even the disappointments and the difficulties that we face in life, the reason that we would ever want to leverage that is so that ultimately we can be leveraged by the one who created us for a distinct purpose in life so that our whole lives would be of benefit to someone else. Verse 13, it says that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. Some of your Bible translations say trouble. Some of them say labor. This is the gift of God. And it is a gift of God if you can find satisfaction in all of that. Life's hard. You can repeat this after me. I used to say to youth groups, in this life, in this life, I will have trouble. I will have trouble. Like the Lord told us that. Like we can't expect this problem-free, difficult-free, easy life. It's not just raise your hand, pray your prayer, trust Jesus, and all of a sudden everything good just happens to you all the time. Like you won the lottery and you never have a problem and no one has ever mean to you. What we understand is that when we have those difficult moments, when we have those challenges in life, it's really just the great God of this universe working them out for our good so that we can be better leveraged for his divine purpose in our life. And I love that word satisfaction. If your Bible says it in verse 13, you should underline it and then put a little dotted line and and write the word Piper on the side of it because there's a fantastic quote. He says this, God is most glorified in us. When we are the most satisfied in him. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what else I'm walking through or whatever kind of difficulty I'm facing or whatever kind of challenges are presented before me. If my satisfaction isn't the great God of this universe, then he's getting some glory from me and I'm being leveraged for his good work in my life. Verse 14, the, the, the preacher, the collector of wise sayings says this, I know that everything that God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And to understand our circumstances in life, this is in your notes this morning, to, to really understand 
everything under the sun, to really understand everything between our birthday and our death day, to really to really maximize and leverage all of the stuff that comes in between it is to understand God's sovereign purpose over all of life. It's as if each and every single one of these appointed times by God is meant to ultimately point us to Jesus. That word fear in, in, in Ecclesiastes 3.14, it, it literally means to stand in awe. It, it's the basis for our worship. It's not fear like scary movie or mouse running across the kitchen floor or snake in the grass in your backyard. Like all these things that are just creepy and like just what? It's not fear like I'm afraid of something. It's fear as in I stand in awe of the one who created all the somethings. Everything under the sun is ultimately appointed by God and specifically designed to point us to Christ so that we would fear him, recognize him for who he is and what he's done. Here's why you and I as a people have to be concerned even, yeah, like we, here's why we have to be concerned for our time. A, because we're wasting a lot of it, apparently. No. We have to leverage time because we're bound by it. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us, none of us know that, like, we're included in what happens next week or next month or next year. We have to leverage our time because we are bound by a certain amount of it. We may have the same number of hours in each day, but we do not have the same number of hours in our lives. Some of us in here are going to live to a really ripe old age. Like maybe even a hundred and you're going to get your picture in the paper. It's going to be a big celebration. But not all of us. And we think at some point in our lives that like nothing can take us out. Nothing can stop us. We're going to, I mean, like nothing can hold, like that's probably how you feel in your 20s. I don't know. But like at some point you, you, you hit this curve and you start to realize I'm on the back half. And I don't know how much half is really, really left. Nobody knows when their midlife really is. Nobody. Only the Lord. We have to leverage our time because we're bound by it. We take it for granted and we're never promised more of it. James 4.14, he writes, what is your life? You're a mist. You're a, you're a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And so because we don't know how much time we have and because there is a limited amount of it, there's 24 hours a day, you need to sleep for at least six of them. So all of a sudden you're looking at 18 hours of being awake every day. Some of you are like, six, I need to sleep for nine. Okay, well, you're looking at um, 15 hours of like productive time throughout the day. You've got to use it wisely. With limited time, we want to make sure that we have enough room for the right things. Ephesians chapter 5, it says, look carefully, then how you walk. That just means live each day. 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. C.S. Lewis says that we're too easily pleased. That, that, that we're far too easily pleased in life. And that there's too many little boring distractions and not boring, but like really entertaining. Like there's too many distractions in life where we can get so busy engaging in something that doesn't have any eternal significance whatsoever. 11 hours a day of screen time, three hours and 15 minutes of just touching a device. Like we've got to leverage our time because we want to have enough room for the right things. We're we're too easily pleased by whatever distractions there are in this world. Time is a key factor. This is number two in your notes. Time is a key factor in pleasing God and accomplishing his will in Christ. Several years ago, I read this book um, by an author named Matt Perman, and it's called What's Best Next? And the whole subject, like the the tagline of the title was what really got me interested in this book. It's about gospel-driven productivity. This idea that I want to be more productive. I want to make the best use of my time. And it wasn't a book that was like, hey, let's all get busy and like order our day and schedule our steps. Although there are some really good tips inside of it. But this book says this. We are to use all that we have in all areas of life for the good of others. There's that benefit to the glory of God. And this is where it gets interesting. This is the most exciting life. That the way to be really fulfilled, the way to be really happy, the way to be really excited about what's going on in life is to use that life to make more of Jesus. To, to do more with Jesus. And that's when the word more gets really, really good. When it's all about more of him. This book in Ecclesiastes, in fact, all of our Old Testament books, we, we look for Jesus in them because we want to make sure that we're, we're focusing on Christ. And some people want to throw out the Old Testament and just focus on the new. And then some people want to focus on just the four Gospels where Jesus actually got to walk around and say certain things. And we put certain words in red letters because Jesus said it while he was like walking around, eating and sleeping and breathing, human Jesus before he died. So like those are the words that we're going to count. Jesus said every single word that's written down in this book. Start to finish, the whole thing could be read. And we get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 11. If you're summing up the book, it says, The words of the wise are like goads. I had to look up what a goad is. It's literally a cattle prod. Moving the cow in the right direction. The words of the wise are meant to move us in the right direction. They're collected sayings. You combine all this stuff together, they're collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails. You know, you ever walk out on a back deck that's been there for a really long time and there's a nail sticking up and you put your foot on it, it hurts real bad. Sometimes you gotta hammer that bad boy back down. These are these collected sayings are firmly embedded nails. They don't pop back up. Firmly embedded nails, giving you a foundation for the way that you live. The words of the wise are like goads pointing you in the right direction. The words of the wise are like firmly embedded nails, giving us a foundation for the way that we live. And it says there at the end, given by one shepherd. Some of your Bible translations capitalize shepherd at the end of that sentence, because here's Jesus in this book. That ultimately every single word from here was given by him. So that we could know him. The word more 
is a word that can be dangerous. When I want more stuff, when I want more freedom, when I want more rights, when I want more of just the things that are enticing me, I could spend my entire life wanting more, or I could spend my life making more of Jesus. And living every single minute under his authority, knowing that everything that happens is his divinely appointed moment so that I could see Christ, but then also communicate Christ with others. How are you using your time? How are you wasting time? How are you recognizing the time that you have and leveraging it to make more of Jesus? That's what we want to do as a church. That's what we want to be as a community. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place one week after Easter, just to celebrate all the good things that you are and and what you do for us, what you gave us in your life and your resurrection. Father, I pray that um, during this season of looking at our resources and our time and just the things that we have and the things that we are in life, that ultimately, God, you would provide wisdom and that we would take that wisdom and follow it, using it and everything that we have to make more of Jesus so that more, there's that word again, more people can come to know him and because we want to be drawn even closer to him. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.